This is John Williams reaching out once again to our old friend Thomas Jefferson. President Jefferson, are you there? Good day, my dear citizen. It's uh, good to hear your voice. Um, We had missed a couple of dates. I know you were traveling and busy on the farm, but we spoke last week, and I wanted to kind of pick up this week our conversation from last, if that's okay. Certainly, sir. You talked about your debt. You talked about one hundred and four thousand dollars in debt in eighteen twenty six. That would be, you know, eight or nine million in your time. Well, the reason it even came up was because there's this ongoing discussion about the people running for president and how much of their personal finances should we know? Should they release their income tax returns, etc.? You're no fan of that, are you? No, I think that we are entitled to a very high level of privacy, a sort of wall of separation between our public lives and our private lives. And if if I had been told that the price of being president or governor or secretary of state was that people would know about my children and would know about my finances and would would see what amounted to tax returns for Virginia and would be able to quiz me about my religious sensibilities and so on, my favorite book, things like that, I would have quietly turned and walked away because I want nothing to do with a world in which that is regarded as useful information, number one, and where the public feels entitled to skewer a public figure for things that are none of their business. Yeah. Just last week, Justin Bieber announced that he's not going to take pictures with his fans anymore. He said he feels like a, feels like a, an animal in the zoo because people come up and stare and want a little piece of him. Imagine that, you having something in common with Justin Bieber. Well, well this, is, this is fundamentally different. Here's a young man who, as I understand it, has spent his entire life trying to become famous. Yeah, And now that he has, he pretends that he regrets it. I, I can't feel any sympathy at all for such a person, but I never did that. I never wanted to be known. I always said that if I were important, it was because of the ideas that I was articulating, and those were not my ideas. Those were the broad ideas of natural law and the Enlightenment. I was very uncomfortable with public notoriety of any sort. I traveled incognito. You know, once I was traveling as president in a carriage, I believe between Monticello and Washington, D.C., and I was just a Virginia gentleman, and another man got in the carriage, and for about three and a half hours, he was um, criticizing President Jefferson and saying that he was an atheist and a, a francophile and that, that uh, his policies were a disaster and his personal life was unscrupulous and so on. And I nodded politely all the while and let him speak. And then when we got out of the carriage, uh, one of the hosts said, oh, President Jefferson, here you are. And the man blushed and was abashed that he had been so um, mean-spirited toward me. But I shook his hand and said, you know, you've done me a favor. You have spoken candidly, and you would not have spoken candidly had I announced who I was. So just humor me. What was your favorite book? Here we are sitting on the CNN or Fox News set. What is your favorite book, President Jefferson? So, uh, while I was telling that very sentimental anecdote, you were just thinking of asking me this question. That's great. Uh, my favorite book of novels, of fiction, uh, is Don Quixote, which I read in Spanish on my way from Boston to uh, England uh, and France in 1784. I learned Spanish on board that ship and read Don Quixote as my as my key. In nonfiction, I think maybe the uh, the histories of Tacitus, the Roman historian of the first century A.D. would I would say is my favorite book. What what's your favorite book, sir? 
I don't know. I was just, uh, I could answer that, but I was just thinking on my most recent transatlantic voyage, we went from uh, Chicago to Paris, and as we went over, I watched Star Wars. You learned Spanish and then read Don Quixote, so the times have changed, haven't well, they? We had a, it was 19 days to get across the Atlantic. I'm sure it was less than 19 hours. It was eight hours. It was grueling. We sat in coach. You wouldn't believe it. The food but I wonder what you good. would have done with 19 days. Yeah, I don't know that I would have learned a foreign language, although I was trying to brush up on my French. But well, there you are. Different... I mean, you were using it, using your own time well, if that's the case, a little entertainment and perhaps a meal or two, a glass of Bordeaux, and then some uh, some French. So there was a story in the Wall Street Journal recently, and it talked a little bit about, in fact, the headline was, Thomas Jefferson, lover of wines, keeper of records. And it went into some detail about a book they have, a bound leather journal, in which you kept meticulous account of all of the wines that you purchased, what you paid for them, um, how much you bought. And they noted that while you appreciated great wines, you sometimes bought rather pedestrian table wines, too. I don't know if you know specifically the book they're talking about. You had a lot of journals, but um, it's just a fascinating insight into, into Thomas Jefferson. Well, I kept uh, diaries about almost everything, a garden book and a farm book and an account book and a letter log and a meteorological book and, and, a, and a wine journal because I, I believe in organization of, of information and the more we know, the more data we have, uh, the, the more enlightened we will be and, and the wiser we will be. So I, I, I did have sort of a zany um, obsession with, with record keeping as to wine. Uh, when I discovered true French wines, uh, I could never drink anything else. When I was growing up, we drank Madeira and Port and and Sherry and so on, these fortified wines that had made uh, transportation in the British Empire possible. Wine is, wine is very delicate and fragile. It doesn't travel well. And so the British fortified their wines so that they would hold up under the um, the heat and the jostling and so on of long-distance travel. But then I discovered in Williamsburg real wine, and I never could be um, persuaded to, to, to be satisfied with anything else for the rest of my life. But when I traveled in Europe, as I did for a number of years between 1784 and 1789, I always drank Van Ordinaire. When I was at a tavern or in a hotel, I would simply call for the house wine because I, I don't like pretentiousness with respect to wine, and it's not good hospitality to go to a tavern somewhere in, in uh, Aix-en-Provence and start quizzing uh, the tavern keeper about their wines. I, I trust them to bring out something that is suitable to the life of a gentleman. But it was in excess for you, too, wasn't it? It was in cost. You know, I was paid 25,000 dollars per year as, as president, which was a gigantic sum but expected to cover all of my own costs. And the wine bill alone for the White House in the first years of my presidency came to over $2,500 per year, so a tenth of my income just on wine, not for my own consumption, but to serve at the dinner parties that I held two or three times a week in, in the White House. And and then I bought wine in my retirement and when I could no longer really afford it. But I found that I cannot live without wine. Wine, by habit, has become almost a health food to me. We talked about this in our last podcast, 
Were you Donald Trump or were you an American candidate today, you would have been serving Trump wine or Jefferson wine. Never. And and upon your retirement, you would have sold the private label Jefferson wines who wouldn't want a bottle of Thomas Jefferson wine. In fact, I got news for you. There's a label now. I can buy Thomas Jefferson wine at Lindale Liquors. I'm sorry to hear this. I don't like the idea of this. Um, I never produced good wine at Monticello. I produced some grapes, but wine is the parent of patience and industry. And I was too busy, too consumed with our national political life to give it the attention that it deserves. But even if I had produced good wine, I can promise you it would never have been called Jefferson. This this labeling of men's egos onto uh, objects in the world is a very disagreeable thing to me. I I resent it, and I you know my the bottles of wine that you're talking about that that are occasionally found and they sell for a million dollars or one hundred fifty thousand dollars, that makes more sense to me because they're not they're not labeled Jefferson or Monticello. They're fine Bordeaux wines that I happen to have bottled for myself. And then it takes some detective work for someone to figure out that I owned this bottle. That makes it infinitely more valuable in monetary terms than if it had some pathetic label on it saying Jefferson. Could get a can of Jefferson peas, maybe a Jefferson steak. and uh, <laughs> Yes, of course. And Jefferson uh, ham. And that well, uh, I saw. I, if I Google it, and don't ask me what Google is, I'll bet I would find a Jefferson ham, and I'll bet I'd pay handsomely for it, and you would have not retired or died in debt. You know who got us hams was Meriwether Lewis's mother. Um, she was an amazing woman, Lucy Marks, and she used to supply turkeys and hams from her plantation, which was almost within sight of Monticello. To mine, and and she and I were close friends, and so was Lewis's father, although he died during the Revolutionary War. He caught pneumonia while crossing a creek, and he died. And so I, in a sense, um, became a surrogate father in many respects to young Meriwether Lewis. But his mother, Lucy, now that you mention it, uh, really produced the best hams. So maybe they could be called Lucy hams. One last question for you. And speak seriously about this, and then I'll leave you be this time. But I think we're grappling with the ego and the personality of Donald Trump in America versus his ability to actually lead this country. Um, if nothing else, he's captured, you know, he's he's articulating uh, things that a lot of people are angry about, and, and they're going to vote for him as a result. There seems to be value in that. There's something behind that. Uh, but we just have trouble, a lot of us, looking past his personality. Could you give us some guidance on all of that? I can try. I'll try to be very serious here for a moment. You know, I've racked my brains in the past few months as we've been talking to try to think of who in my time was the analog to this Trump. And really the only person that I can think of is Patrick Henry. And Patrick Henry is Apollo compared to this Trump, but he was a demagogue and he liked to hear himself speak and he was a charismatic and a, something of a bully and he always took the the most popular but least well thought out position on every issue. And so he, in a way, uh, reminds me a little bit of Trump, but Patrick Henry is a, is a hero of the revolution of the United States and a great man in a way that I don't think that this Trump 
really is. And, and, and of course, secondly, we could only be taken seriously to the extent that we were modest. I, I, I'll just repeat that in other terms. If we called attention to ourselves and said, look at me, here's what I'm going to do for this country, and spoke in blunt terms as if problems of that magnitude could be solved with a slogan here and a bromide there, the American people were wise enough in my time to turn away from that in, in quiet disgust. In other words, they could not have been susceptible to this sort of simplification, um, this branding of all human problems as, as being capable of being uh, answered by a quip. The American people should be better than that. In other words, if you may allow me to to, to speak rather darkly, mm-hmm. this is really an indictment of the people of the United States, or at least some portion of them, who are susceptible to this sort of thing. The people should be better than this. They should say, we expect our political leaders to lift us to know more than we know, to uh, understand nuance, uh, to have solved very difficult problems before and to realize that no difficult problem is easily solved, to bring a level of dignity and and uh, gentility to all public questions, never to take the easy road. That's That's what a republic requires, John. I'm serious, that a republic requires a level of maturity, not only in the candidate, but more importantly in the people. They have to demand men of character, excellence, and dignity if they really want this system to work. And when you descend into this sort of a circus, that says something very negative about the people, I think. 